Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of P.S. Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and in today's episode, we will be jumping into some stories from witchy lore and also finding out about some witch trials. So with that in mind, let's jump into the stories. Alright, we're going to start over on History.com with the History of Witches. Um, This is by the History.com editors, and so let's get started. Witches were perceived as evil beings by early Christians in Europe, inspiring the iconic Halloween figure. Images of witches have appeared in various forms throughout history, from evil, wart-nosed women huddling over a cauldron of boiling liquid, to hag-faced, cackling beings riding through the sky on brooms wearing pointy hats. In pop culture, the witch has been portrayed as a benevolent, nose-twitching suburban housewife, an awkward teenager learning to control her powers, and a trio of charmed sisters battling the forces of evil. So, the origin of witches. Early witches were people who practiced witchcraft, using magic spells and calling upon spirits for help or to bring about change. Most witches were thought to be pagans, doing the devil's work. Many, however, were simply natural healers or so-called wise women, whose choice of profession was misunderstood. It's unclear exactly when witches came on the historical scene, but one of the earliest records of a witch is in the Bible, in the book of 1 Samuel, thought to be written between 931 BC and 721 BC. It tells the story of when King Saul sought the witch of Endor to summon the dead prophet Samuel's spirit to help him defeat the Philistine army. The witch roused Samuel, who then prophesied the death of Saul, and his sons, and the next day, according to the Bible, Saul's sons died in battle, and Saul committed suicide. Other Old Testament verses condemn witches, such as the off-sighted Exodus 22.18, which says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Additional biblical passages caution against divination, chanting, or using witches to contact the dead. Malleus Maleficarum Witch hysteria really took hold in Europe during the mid-1400s, when many accused witches confessed, often under torture, to a variety of wicked behaviors. Within a century, witch hunts were common, and most of the accused were executed by burning at the stake or hanging. Between the years 1500 and 1660, up to 80,000 suspected witches were put to death in Europe. Around 80% of them were women thought to be in cahoots with the devil and filled with lust. Germany had the highest witchcraft execution rate, while Ireland had the lowest. The publication of Malleus Milficarum, written by two well-respected German Dominicans in 1486, likely spurred witch mania to go viral. The book, usually translated as The Hammer of Witches, was essentially a guide of how to identify, hunt, and interrogate witches. Malleus Malficarum labeled witchcraft as heresy and quickly became the authority for Protestants and Catholics trying to flush out witches living among them. For more than 100 years, the book sold more copies of any other book in Europe except the Bible, Salem Witch Trials. As witch hysteria decreased in Europe, it grew in the New World, 
which is reeling from wars between the French and British, a smallpox epidemic, and an ongoing fear of attacks from neighboring Native American tribes. The tense atmosphere was ripe for the finding scapegoats. Probably the best-known witch trial took place in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. The Salem witch trials began when 9-year-old Elizabeth Parrish and 11-year-old Abigail Williams began suffering from fits, body contortions, and uncontrolled screaming. Today, it is believed they were poisoned by a fungus that causes spasms and delusions. As more young women began to exhibit symptoms, mass hysteria ensued, and three women were accused of witchcraft, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba, an enslaved woman owned by Paris's father. Tituba confessed to being a witch and began accusing others of using black magic. On June 10th, Bridget Bishop became the first accused witch to be put to death during the Salem witch trials when she was hanged at the Salem gallows. Ultimately, around 150 people were accused and 18 were put to death. Women weren't the only victims at the Salem witch trials. Six men were also convicted and executed. Massachusetts wasn't the first of the 13 colonies to obsess about witches. In Windsor, Connecticut in 1647, I'll say Young was the first person in America executed for witchcraft. Before Connecticut's final witch trial took place in 1697, 46 people were accused of witchcraft in that state, and 11 were put to death for the crime. In Virginia, people were less frantic about witches. In fact, in Lower Norfolk County in 1655, a law was passed making it a crime to falsely accuse someone of witchcraft. Still, witchcraft was a concern. About two dozen witch trials, mostly of women, took place in Virginia between 1626 and 1730. So, it bears the question, are witches real? One of the most famous witches in Virginia's history is Grace Sherwood, whose neighbors allegedly she killed their pigs and hexed their cotton. Other accusations followed, and Sherwood was brought to trial in 1706. The court decided to use a controversial water test to determine her guilt or innocence. Sherwood's arms and legs were bound, and she was thrown into a body of water. It was thought that if she sank, she was innocent. If she floated, she was guilty. Sherwood didn't sink and was convicted of being a witch. She wasn't killed but put in prison for eight years. A satirical article supposedly written by Benjamin Franklin about a witch trial in New Jersey was published in 1730 in the Pennsylvania Gazette. It brought to light the ridiculousness of some witchcraft accusations. It wasn't long before witch mania died out in the New World, and laws were passed to help protect people from being wrongly accused and convicted. Book of Shadows Modern-day witches of the Western world still struggle to shake their historical stereotype Most practice Wicca, an official religion in the United States and Canada. Wiccans avoid evil and appearances of evil at all costs. Their motto is to harm none, and they strive to live a peaceful, tolerant, and balanced life in tune with nature and humanity. Many modern-day witches still perform witchcraft, but there's seldom anything sinister about it. Their spells and incantations are often derived from their Book of Shadows, a 20th century collection of wisdom and witchcraft, and can be compared to the act of prayer in other religions. A modern-day witchcraft potion is more likely to be an herbal remedy for the flu instead of a hex to harm someone. 
Today's witchcraft spells are usually used to stop someone from doing evil or harming themselves. Ironically, while it's probably some historical witches using witchcraft for evil purposes, many may have embraced it for healing or protection against the immortality they were accused of. But witches, whether actual or accused, still face persecution and death. Several men and women suspected of using witchcraft have been beaten and killed in Papua New Guinea since 2010, including a young mother who was burned alive. Similar episodes of violence against people accused of being witches have occurred in Africa, South America, and the Middle East, and in immigrant communities in Europe and the United States. Alright, very cool. I always like to find out the history of stuff uh, before we go into the scary stories or the sometimes outlandish stories that accuse many people of these things. So, all right, let's jump into Thought Catalog, where they have an article, Nine True Stories About Encounters with Witchcraft, Voodoo, and the Occult by Emily Madriga. I was the victim of a bear walker. In First Nations culture, a bear walker is someone who uses our sacred medicines for bad and not good. They can make someone very sick. Only a medicine man may reverse it, and it often comes as a gamble for the bear walker. Once reversed, they will suffer more than the one that they made sick. I was 20 years old and very healthy. One night, I had a dream I was in a field and was picking wildflowers. From each direction, a tornado was coming at me. I woke up in a fevered sweat. That began two months of sheer misery. My doctor kept saying that I had a UTI. She would give me antibiotics and it would subside for a while. I lost 40 pounds in the span of two months. By the end of it, I couldn't walk. I could barely eat. Finally, my mom got tired of it. My sister bundled me up and we went to the hospital. Though an earlier ultrasound showed nothing, there was a huge growth on my ovary. A few days later, I had surgery, and when the doctor came to visit me, he said he had never seen anything like it. It was a yellow, almost concrete-like substance around my ovary. I got better, but my mom remained unconvinced and scheduled an appointment with a medicine man. We gave him tobacco, and he smoked a pipe and sang a song. He said something along the lines of a woman seeing me at a powwow. She became interested in who I was because of my mother. She threw a piece of medicine in my path, and I stepped on it, and it went up the right leg. He asked me if I still felt it. I said yes. He took a bone, what kind I'm not sure, placed it in the area, and began to suck. Weird, I know. He started vomiting yellow. Vomiting yellow, like the doctor had said. He gave me medicines and rituals for my mom to do. I went home that night, and I slept for 13 hours. My sickness never returned. Next one is dating at which? This happened a few years ago. I was on a dating site and matched with an attractive person, so I started chatting. We made it to the plans tonight part of the conversation, and she told me she was going to play hide-and-seek with Fluffy. Pointing out the item in their second profile picture, a bloody rabbit mask. Uh, okay, let's be weird. So I played along until she mentioned they would be playing in my basement. I thought, how in the hell? 
a wild guess, probably. I lied and told her I didn't have a basement. And she texted, oh yeah? And I heard, schnickelfritz, booming from the basement. I won't lie to you, Reddit. I about shit myself. Obviously, I blocked her and froze for an hour before I gathered the courage to check my completely enclosed from the outside basement. I didn't find anything, thankfully. I didn't have a smart device at all, and I didn't have any speakers that could have been hacked. I didn't even have a wireless internet at the time. The basement was completely empty. I still can't explain it in the slightest. And that nickname is Snicklefritz646. This one is No Pictures. I went to a voodoo shop in New Orleans that had a lot of signs up that said no pictures. My boyfriend's mom wanted some voodoo dolls and wanted to see pictures of them before he bought it. I told him not to because I had a bad feeling about it. Immediately after taking the picture with his cell phone, he lost signal. Mine was totally fine. He couldn't send the picture, so we walked outside, and a car drove by and splashed him with water, but I was dry. Freaked out, I told him to delete the pictures, and we had to buy the two dolls he took pictures of. A ghost pulled my father from the ankles out of his bed when he was sleeping because he didn't want to go to his aunt's funeral the same week. My mom was with him, of course, and woke up to see how he was just in the middle of the bed with his legs dangling outside, and he was scared and pale from fear. We've had so many paranormal things happen to us. Maybe it's because of where we live. I could feel the power. When I was a teen, a bunch of my friends went through a Wiccan phase. I honestly thought it was a bunch of hooey, but played along for the most part. Because, hey, they could have gotten into drugs or horses instead, right? But despite thinking it's bullshit, there was one moment that made me question things. Us girls had met up to hang out, and one was brandishing a wooden walking stick. I have poured my energy into this totem, she declared, then started passing it around the room. The others cooed about how they could feel the power within it as they held it. Of course, someone handed me the stick eventually. I could barely contain my eye roll as I took it. As I held the walking stick, it sent a tingling sensation up my arm. I passed it on quickly. Not as dramatic as some of the stories, but gosh, it was weird. Reasonable Hornet. The Silver Pendant. When I was in high school, I had this sudden bout of nightmares and sleep paralysis. I wasn't going through a stressful time or anything, and I don't freak out easily. I grew up watching 80s and 90s horror films, and normally sleep in total darkness and the doors closed. These nightmares were super sudden and happened almost every single night. I was constant sleep paralysis, where my room was on fire, or there were bats thrashing around above me, or there was a figure hovering over my body, and I couldn't breathe. That's the classic. Sometimes my speakers let out a strange frequency-type sound, even when it was switched off. Things would fall off my shelves, etc. My mom would always find me sleeping on the couch the next morning with the TV on because it, it was so crazy. Suddenly it all stopped, and when I told my mom, she admitted that she had sought advice from a priestess who engraved a blessing for me on a silver pendant and instructed my mom to place it in my room. She didn't want to tell me to see if it would work. I never had episodes since. My grandma made me pay. I was about 13, and my grandma was a believer in spirits, witches, etc., well, I had just pissed her off, and she told me I was going to pay. 
That night, I woke up at about 3 in the morning, and I saw a little kid with a green shirt on in my room. He stared at me for about a minute, and I couldn't look away. He then ran out of my room straight through the door laughing. About 30 minutes later, another figure appeared in my room who looked about 15. He just stared at me and mumbled something, and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't talk, scream, or move. I could only look. He then vanished into seemingly thin air. The next night, I woke up around the same time, and it sounded as if there were 50 people in my room screaming at me to kill myself, kill my family, and just a lot of negative thoughts in general. The next day, I got anointed, and it stopped. Later that day, I had to see my grandma, and I instantly started to get sick after I hugged her, and she just sat there with a smirk on her face. I then got anointed again, and it stopped. I still can't explain how she did it, but I still to this day am afraid to make my grandma mad. I used to work in an occult bookstore. We sold mostly psychic nonsense and spiritualist new agey stuff. But there was a bookcase in the back with really expensive stuff, and the owner was this real old, real wise man. The woman used to come in when I was working, and she'd just talk for ages and ages. It was a non-stop stream of bullshit. She knew this. She did that. Did you know about this on and on? She'd suck up a ton of time. If you've ever heard the term energy vampire, it would apply here. And when she left, you just feel really drained. One day, she comes in while the owner is there. She walks up to the counter and starts her shtick. And he's very polite and listening, but she just sort of runs out of steam. Like within 60 seconds. She hums and haws a bit and then walks out of the store. It would eventually take me an hour to get rid of her. And he shut her down in a minute flat with a smile on his face. I mention it to him and he says, there's a circle of protection painted under the floor for a reason. Kid I was friends with in high school was jumped on two separate occasions. First, a mutual friend lured him outside his house, where a large group of dudes waiting. One of them jumped him and beat him fairly badly. Second was a very high school meet-me-after-school type fight, which my friend won, and was subsequently jumped by the fight loser's boxer friend, the one he got severely effed up. Or in that one, he got severely effed up. So fast forward a year or so, he and I have kind of grown apart. He tells me he's getting into Satanism and made a pact to sell his soul. He asked for three. The one that lured him, the loser of the second fight, and the boxer to all be killed. Here's where it gets interesting. The luring guy died in a freak car accident two-ish years later, thrown th from the back of a topless jeep. Loser of the second fight died four-ish years later, heroin overdose. And the boxer died four-ish four years later as well. Don't know what he died from. We're in our mid-40s, and he's now married with a kid. All probably total coincidences. But at the time, I was like, WTF did you do? And it was written by Nicole Garten. Something was trying to get in a ghost story version of the Bell Witch tale. As we've covered in other episodes, the Bell Witch was, of course, from Tennessee in the Hermitage area. Um, there's a Bell Witch cave. There's the story of how the Bell Witch harassed that family in their farmhouse, how a former president and his army came and, you know, left 
because they heard stuff and like all this kind of stuff. There's an editor's note. This ghost story version of the Bell Witch Tale, written by Nicole Garten, was originally published in the Tennessean on October 22nd, 2001. We present it here for anyone looking to get spooked by a local legend. Something was trying to get in. Asleep beneath her quilt in 1817, Betsy Bell awoke in the dark to a sound, a knock at the door, but no one was there. Night after night, doors were pounded, windows banged on, and a flapping of wings sounded against the roof. Betsy's father and brothers would examine the house, but in the moonlight that shone on their log cabin, they found nothing. As the days went by, the sound grew louder and louder, and more frequent, until they shook the cabin with their force. Maybe they were caused by earthquakes, Betty's father thought, but no one else in the neighborhood was affected. Maybe they were the work of scoundrels up to mischief, he guessed, but the culprit couldn't be caught. Then one night, there was a scratching sound inside Betsy's room, like claws scraping on the floor. It had gotten inside. Every night after that, the noise kept 12-year-old Betsy and the rest of her family awake and scared. It moved throughout the house, getting worse and worse. Finally, when we were would search for a rat in our room, the same noise would appear in Sister Elizabeth's chamber, disturbing her and arousing all the family, wrote Betsy's little brother Richard years later. Then one night, while Betsy huddled under her quilt, the covers slid off as if someone were pulling them. She could hear the sounds of smacking lips, gulping, and choking. Soon, members of the family regularly were having their blankets torn off of them at night. When Betsy and her brothers tried to get them back, an unseen hand would slap them. It also began to pinch them, hit them, and pull their hair. The family finally had to admit the truth. They had a ghost. Then the ghost began to talk. The voices would laugh, sing, curse, and sometimes recite prayers and sermons. The spirit seemed to like Betsy's mother, Lucy, but hated her father, John. The ghost also seemed to hate Betsy and was especially abusive to her. Not only was the girl slapped until welts appeared, but she started having fainting spells. Betsy would start panting or gasping for air. Sometimes she closed her eyes and would lay there, though she were dead, losing her breath for as long as a minute. Then the spell would pass and she would be fine. When Betsy felt like she couldn't take it anymore, her parents sent her to a friend's house to spend the night. On her first night away from home, Betsy ate supper with her best friend. They talked for a while and then headed to bed. They had just snuggled under the covers when a knock sounded at the bedroom door. Then the door flew open and a blast of wind blew out the candles. The covers were jerked from the bed and the girls jumped up to close the door and found it had never been opened. People accused Betsy of making up the ghost and creating the noises herself using ventriloquism or making her voice sound like it was coming from somewhere else. But soon the hauntings grew beyond anything a 12-year-old girl could produce. When a strange, nervous condition made it difficult for John Bell to chew or swallow, he blamed it on the ghost. He knew he couldn't keep the family secret any longer. Once word got out, concerned friends and curious strangers visited the Bell the bells to hear the rantings and ravings of the ghost and the bell witch, which became known as the bell witch, of course. The witch was a torment, not only to Betsy, but to John Bell. The spirit taunted and threatened him. More and more, he would suffer spells and facial contortions, which forced him to take to his bed. 
1820, three years after the haunting began, John's sons found him unconscious. In the cupboard where John's medicines were kept, his son found a strange bottle. The witch laughed and said she gave it to him, and she said he would never wake up, and he never did. All right, very cool story about the Bell Witch. I know we've covered that in other episodes, but definitely a nice little summary there. All right, let's take a little break and then get right back into the storytelling. All right, we're going to go over to Battletownwitch.com, where they're currently advertising for the Battletown Witch Festival at the end of the month, um, located in Meade County in Brandenburg, Kentucky. But I wanted to read this because I'm a Kentucky local, so it's just kind of fascinating. Now that I'm doing stories on witches, I thought I would include this in it as well. All right, we get to the story, the story of Leah, part one. Kentucky and Meade County especially are some of the oldest inhabited parts of the Americas. From its protection during the Ice Age to its stubbornness to be settled, this dark and bloodied ground seems to hold secrets. There's a place called Lapland, where the sun seems to be dimmer and the animals a little quieter. For generations, there have been strange legends of creatures that seem not to belong and stories of women that could wield powers of nature. Our tale is of one such woman, although she was only in Lapland for two years. Her story is still told in hushed homes today. This is the story of Leah Smock, the Battletown Witch. Leah had the terrible misfortune of being both intelligent and beautiful in 1840 Kentucky. She could also heal with herbs, could predict the future, and was whispered to be a witch. Leah finished school early because she learned all that teachers knew. She went on to learn from everything around her, how if you kill the weeds near a pond, cows can still die because the poisonous roots are still touching the water. Oh, she tried to warn those around her, but they were either too stubborn or too proud to listen. She still had her companions, even close friends. It has been rumored that she was in love in the later summer of 1840, Leah was the oldest of three children and had dark hair and dark eyes. She spent her days helping her father make barrels or traipsing through the dark woods of Lapland. She carried a walking stick that was made by her Native American friend, Jim. It had the head of a snake coming out of the wood at the top. There is some irony in that. You will find out more about that later. Leah learned from the Cherokee that remained in the area after the Indian Removal Act of 1830. But times were tough in 1840, and her daddy was in a land dispute with one of the neighbors. It was no fault of his. Some big city huckster by the name of Hardin sold their land twice. Leah had been making herself known more and more with the neighbors, and rumors had been swelling for the entire two years they had come to know those parts. In that late August, Leah had been accused of curing a horse that she wasn't allowed to pet and causing its death. She also wanted to hold a baby that and wasn't allowed. The baby passed the next day, and everyone just assumed it was Leah. What is beside the point is that infant mortality rates were not even calculated at the time due to them being so high, 
and nothing resembling a doctor being around for miles. In times of hardship, people turn their ire on what they do not know, and this time their scrutiny became increasingly trained on Leah. On August 21st of 1840, John and Margaret Ann Smock left to visit the nearby town of Staples. They took two of their children with them. Why they left their third child home on that day is a question that remains to be answered. When they left, John and Margaret were unaware this would be the last time they would see their daughter Leah. So on that same, or on that late summer day, unknown neighbors tied the 22-year-old's arms and legs and hauled her out to the family smokehouse. These men, brimming with superstition, stood outside and struck a match. They felt justified as they bore witness to the flames until only silence came from the structure. They left, but that's not the end of Leah's story. All right, the first sighting of Leah's ghost was seen by her mother. According to the old legend, Leah's mother watched the smokehouse burn with her daughter inside. The next day, she confirmed all those rumors and spoke unafraid to Leah's ghost. Floating over the smoldering ruins, Leah emerged. Margaret asked her daughter's spirit why she did not use her powers to free herself. Now, we have stated many times before that Leah was not one to suffer fools in life. Why would that change in death? Her legend recounts that the neighbors responsible for her ghost were those who now saw Leah's ghost. She bore a stare of knowing in their direction. The people of Staples imagined they had buried their dirty deeds with Leah and began to carry on. Some word-of-mouth stories even state that they laughed about her murder, proud of themselves. That was until a week after her death. The neighbors no longer saw her over the smokehouse. They rejoiced that they had burned the witch, until two hunters were out a week later. The unnamed hunters were near John Smock's land and close to the newly formed cemetery. It has been lost to time, what they say, but it was enough. A group of men was once again determined to hold Leah down. Whispers state that they were the same men that ended her life. They were frightened of what they had unleashed and hauled two wagons loads of pure white sandstone rocks to cover her grave. It was a tradition in the old countries to use these stones to keep a spirit from rising. They took the purest white stones, said to convey protection, and buried Leah again. But their efforts were futile. Leah belonged now to the trees and nature that she loved so much. No grave, no grave could hold her body down. Leah was one with the land, and she was now free to roam those 300 acres until the sun stopped shining and the earth stopped turning. You see, the smokehouse was well made and made sturdy. After all, her father was a, cop a cooper by trade. Everyone knew that Leah was inside and she was long gone, but they had to wait days for the fire to die to retrieve her. Once they could safely bury her, she was placed in a coffin and a wagon carried her to what would late be known as Betsy Daly Cemetery. She was the unlucky first grave in that cemetery because no churchyard would welcome a witch. Her father interred her on his land for her to stay until time's end. Leah at first was seen around her grave. First-hand accounts show her in a white gown, still bound with black ties on each wrist, and a long black tie at her waist. As time went on, Leah became more legend 
person. Her details got fuzzy outside of Battletown. In 1970, this is how she is described in the Meade County Messenger. There are stories that there was a witch's grave in Betsy Daly Cemetery. Her name is Mrs. Smock. She came out of her grave wearing a complete black outfit and walks around the cemetery. This is odd because if you read the first and second-hand accounts in Kay Hamilton's book, Burned as a Witch, The Legend of Leah Smock, she has a hundred years of accounts of Leah's sightings, and her appearance never wavers from a white gown and long black hair. These also include the more modern sightings of her now in the closed Battletown Elementary School. Leah's story is amazing, and interesting as she was in life. There are several modern tropes associated with her that we attribute to movie myths. Stick with us for a moment and listen to an account of the Halloween nights in the 1980s. It became a rite of passage to visit the witch's grave on Halloween night in Meade County. In a story recounted as Gerald W. Fisher's book, Battletown Witch, Leah Smock, The Evolution of Witchcraft and the Last Witch Burning in America, he recounts as the story would be oddly similar to the Blair Witch Project almost 20 years later. The book states, A group of students took their dates to the cemetery on one such Halloween. The witching hour of midnight had come and gone, and nothing happened. Being a November eve and chilly, and the girls wanted to return to the cars, a long walk either way to get back. However, it's one way in and the same way out. The boys had flashlights and began towards the cars. They walked and walked for what seemed long enough to get back, before one of the boys said, I see something ahead. The boys trained their lights on the, on the object and found it was Leah's tombstone. They were back where they started. Shaken a little bit, but undaunted, another boy said, I'll lead up back. Once again, they walked for longer than they needed to arrive to the cars and came right back to Leah's grave. This was repeated all the way until nearly dawn, when they finally found their cars and went home. Fisher does go on to say, I have heard many variations on the story. The most well-documented case of supernatural phenomenon happening by or around Leah would be on October 31, 1991. The local NBC affiliate decided to bring a television news crew into a remote broadcast that night. Camera person Janine White and reporter Ezra Marcus checked the batteries on their equipment and walked the mile in with a group of 15 people. When they arrived at the grave, their equipment was malfunctioning and all the batteries were dead. They managed to record by had to use the group's flashlights. The strangest of all, when they arrived back at the van, all of their equipment was in perfect working order. When we look back on the story of Leah Smock, I ask you to take two things with you. Firstly, never judge someone by what others perceive them to be. History has taught us that nothing good comes from making assumptions about others. Secondly, we hope that you can look upon people that are different than you with kindness. Leah attended church and said her prayers every night. She was a reported Christian and practiced the faith. But she was also a healer, a nature spirit, and chose a different path than those around her. All of these things did not stop her from being branded a witch and put to death for the perceived crime. As time passes, this writer hopes that Leah is more than just a Battletown witch, more than a ghost in a white gown, more than the rite of passage on Halloween. 
We hope that she has become much of the forest that she loves, so as the trees, the animals, and the sandstone that created the part of the world eons ago. But above all else, we hope that she has moved beyond how she passed and has found some kind of peace. All right, very cool story. I know being from Kentucky, I always kind of latch on to those stories and Meek County is right in my backyard. So that's pretty cool. I did want to mention one of the that I have, you know, done anything the least bit witchy, although it does run in our bloodline, as I mentioned in a lot of the earlier episodes, and it's kind of been passed on and on and on. Um, but like my great grandmother uh, did practice witchcraft and um, she was a healer. And so like when my mom would get nosebleeds, she would go grab the family Bible and place it on my mom's head and say some words and her nosebleed would instantly go away. Um, things like that, different things with oil and the forehead and just all kinds of things. <laughs> and I've talked about that in other episodes. Now, besides the things that I've heard, like mimics or seen shadow people or anything like that that I've personally seen or full body apparitions, one of the things that I've done personally that was like set my intention and have to be at one of my jobs, there was somebody that was gossiping and talking about me and they wouldn't stop. And it was starting to turn into a real problem and starting to make working there kind of hell. So I did what you know, I've been taught and I got a mason jar and just all kinds of things. I was trying to put the intention out there of like, keep my name out of your mouth. Like, I want this to stop. I just want the gossip to stop. I don't want him hurt. I just want him to stop talking about me. And, you know, I wrote his name and put it in there and then shook it up, um, sealed it and then put it in my freezer um, to kind of freeze the action that he was perpetrating. And anytime I do something like that, I feel like I'm, like, confronted by their protectors or their ancestors or whoever's protecting them at the time. Um, like, in my head, of course. But it's like I have to kind of tell them why I'm bringing this to them or why I'm kind of working this towards their person, you know? But yeah, it did work. Um, a few days later... Uh, this person, like, got kicked out of their apartment and, you know, was in a lot of trouble. Definitely wasn't talking about me anymore. Personally, witchcraft and stuff like that is the same as prayer. It's the same as intention or manifesting or envisioning and working towards that goal. I just, I see it all as intention work. To me, it's the same kind of practice as praying. I did want to talk about the story that I heard one time about these guys. Um, I forget where I heard it, but these guys were in LA somewhere and they were talking about going to the beach and they met these women there. So they were chilling. They were, you know, they made a bonfire on the beach. They were just sitting around drinking and you know, they were getting really flirty and stuff like that. So the girls eventually tell the guys that they're witches. And the guys laugh because, sure, you know, sure, you're a witch. Okay. And they said, no, really. We're the real deal. And then they were like, all right, prove it. And so one of the witches walks to the water. And it's like the water goes away from her. And she's making it do, like, outlines with her presence, not with any body part or anything, of, like, obeying her. 
Um, she even got one of the guys to come closer and check it out and then had him do some of it. She was like letting him do it, but it's almost like water bending a little bit. Not quite to that extent, but like kind of. I don't know. And then the other one could control like the wind and everything, and it picked up really hard. And they were taking credit for these like unnatural phenomena and everything. And the guys, like, you know, they made some excuse later and excused themselves, but they said it was like the wildest story they ever experienced. <laughs> Which I don't blame you. If uh, I met somebody that could control the elements like that, I'd be pretty impressed. But we will go ahead and move on and then get to some more witchy stories. Alright, I'm going to play you guys some TikToks and about witches and let's just enjoy. Um, this is a person called... Priestess Rose, and she's telling a story about uh, witches that her mom told her about. Alright, and it says Haitian Voodoo Talk. Back in the day, when they used to go to church, there was this witch. One morning, they came to church on Sunday, and the pastor, and they're a really good, genuine pastor with real serious pouvra power in Haiti. I can't speak for anywhere else, but I know in Haiti, they be some real godly people. The pastor goes, I know that there are some people who come to church that are witches. On Saturday, y'all fly and y'all go do all of these evil acts. And then on Sunday, y'all come to church trying to pretend like y'all righteous, like y'all good people. But I know exactly what you are and I can see through you. And I'm warning you right now, when it comes time to receive communion, if you come in and you get communion, I promise you that it will be stuck in your throat. I know how it is, right? People just be like, they bluffing, they're kidding, ain't no way. Ain't no way. You know, the time comes, it's time to get up to receive communion. Why this lady know that she's a witch, a lugau, and she really walked up and got communion? Bro, sure enough, just like the pastor said, the fucking thing got stuck in her throat. And she couldn't talk anymore. She literally became mute. So then her daughter comes back. And remember, witches, most of the time, they will have children. Her daughter comes with her. And her daughter says to the pastor, like, can you please undo whatever it is that you did to my mother? She has been mute. She can't talk ever since she went up to get communion. She's not able to verbally communicate. The pastor just looked at her and said, you knew what you were? And I gave you a fear warning. I told you that if you come up and receive communion, what was going to happen to you and you didn't need my warning, what is done is done and it cannot be undone. Now deceased, this woman spent the rest of her life. The history of witches is a complex and often misunderstood topic. In many cultures throughout history, witches have been seen as powerful individuals who possess magical abilities and often use them for both good and evil purposes. However, the modern perception of witches as evil and associated with Satanism is a relatively recent development. In ancient times, witches were often seen as wise women who possessed knowledge of herbal medicine and healing. They were respected members of their communities and were often called upon to provide guidance and counsel. However, 
As Christianity began to spread throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, the church began to view witches as agents of Satan and accused them of practicing black magic and witchcraft. This led to a series of witch hunts and trials throughout Europe and North America in the 16th and 17th centuries, where thousands of people, mostly women, were accused, tortured, and executed for witchcraft. Many of these accusations were based on rumors and superstitions, and the trials often involved forced confessions and false accusations. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a resurgence of interest in witchcraft emerged, fueled by the writings of occultists like Aleister Crowley and the works of anthropologists like Margaret Murray, who argued that witchcraft was a surviving pagan religion that had been suppressed by Christianity. This led to the emergence of modern witchcraft, or Wicca, which emphasized the worship of nature and the practice of magic as a means of personal empowerment. Today, witches are still often portrayed in popular culture as mysterious and powerful figures, and many people continue to practice Wicca and other forms of witchcraft as a spiritual or religious practice. However, the persecution and demonization of witches has largely faded away and they are now often seen as a symbol of feminine power and independence. The Alright, that was from Talk Story. Did you know the hours between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. are known as witching hour? This is when the paranormal world is at its highest, and even if you're not sensitive, you're bound to have some type of experience. These are the times where it's recommended for you to be in high alert and always remain protected. But of course, do I ever listen? No. So story time. When I used to work night shift at the hospital, there were nights where I would get out at 3 a.m. Now this was before COVID, so a lot of the stores were open 24-7. So on the nights that I would get out at 3 a.m., they were my favorite time to go grocery shopping. I would always hit up Walmart, and it was a dream because there was never anyone there. So 3 a.m., I pull up to the parking lot, and I realize that there's no other cars there. It's just me. I pull up, I'm getting out as I'm walking towards the front door. These three ladies just pop up out of nowhere. My first thought was, that's odd. There were no other cars here, but at the same time, they could have walked. As we make our way to the store, I walk in and I can see them in the light now. And I look at them and I realize that they literally look like they just crawled out of a sewer. And that's not me being judgy. Like, they literally looked and smelled like they just crawled out of a sewer. But I'm like, not my business. I came here to get what I need to get and to get home. So as I'm walking through the aisles, I realize that these ladies are now following me. If not one, but all three. Every aisle I go to, I'm running into them constantly. At first, I think that it's probably just a coincidence, but I'm hitting different aisles. I'm going from like the shoe aisle to the makeup aisle to like the dog food aisle. Like I'm jumping around and everywhere I turn, I'm running into these ladies. It's not in my head, like they really are following me. At this point, I just had to go to the front and try to get the attention of one of the workers. But when I get to the front, there's absolutely no one at any of the registers. Now, I know Walmart is notorious for not having people behind the register, but there's literally not even one person anywhere. As I'm standing there, the one girl kind of comes up from behind me and says, Tatiana, oh Tatiana, she knew my name. At that point, it hit me. These things are not from this world. These things are the words. They happen to be lingering around in the parking lot when they saw me coming in by myself. They decided to follow me in to see if they can attach themselves to me. I dropped everything that was in my hands and I ran to my car. The whole time I'm hearing like whispering and like weird noises coming from behind me. Like I'm getting chills, like just thinking about it now. But as I look back, there's no one there, but I'm hearing the whispering and all this stuff. And I run to my car. I practically like hit the gas all the way home. I kept thinking I was going to see them like in my back seat. 
I get home and I'm like praying every prayer. Like I didn't sleep the rest of that night. Like I didn't sleep. I was like wide awake the whole night because I was freaking out. All right, that was from Creepy Story Times. All right, they also talk about a pretty bizarre um, football story that involved witchcraft or possible witchcraft. Um, there was a soccer match that was going on um, in Africa, just different football teams, and uh, all of a sudden a lightning strike uh, struck the field and like injured. I don't know, like, 11 or 13 people. But what makes people think that it was witchcraft is it was just people on the same team. The home team wasn't touched. Um, there's even news articles out there about witchcraft being blamed and certain, you know, teens would hire witch doctors to kind of get at their opponents and stuff like that uh, because superstition and beliefs really strong there. Um, but they're kind of like, it's either witchcraft or some explainable thing. Like maybe all of the opposing team was wearing steel, uh, cleats instead of rubber cleats and the other team wasn't or something. Take us to Sasakwa, Oklahoma. Sasakwa. Yeah. I really have to say that right. Which seems to be the epicenter of legends of a terrifying creature known as the Stakini. The Stakini are vampire witches of Seminole lore. They're described as shapeshifters, witches, vampires. It's said they appear as any average human during the day, just living a normal life. They could be your neighbors, your teachers, your co-workers. There's really no way to tell in their human form. But at night, the Stakini transform. Most legends say they transform into an owl, but in order to shapeshift, they have to first vomit up their internal organs. It's said they then stash them in the woods, and string them high up on the trees to protect them from animals and anybody else who may tamper with them. Because without these organs, they cannot transform back into their human form. Once they are in their owl form, they go out to hunt, mostly for their preferred meal, which is a living, beating human heart. It's said the Stakini look for vulnerable, sleeping humans, and then rip their hearts from their bodies through their mouth. Ooh. After they feed, they return to the woods, retrieve their organs, and ingest them. Once they ingest them, they return to their human form until it's time for their next nocturnal meal, normally when the moon is full. Some versions of these legends claim that they transform fully into owl form. Others say they shapeshift into some kind of like humanoid owl monster, a lot like that. But by all accounts, it's agreed that it is impossible to kill a stakini in their owl form. They are very strong, very fast, and almost impossible to catch. So the only way to kill a stakini is to go into the woods while they're in their owl form, find their organs and destroy them. Because if the sun rises while they are still in owl form, they die. However, it is said that the Seminole people know of another way, a kind of special arrow that has been blessed and dressed with certain herbs and decorated with owl feathers. But the exact recipe for these arrows is a secret known only inside the Seminole tribes. In most versions of this legend, the Stakini were once human witches who performed many evil deeds in order to become more powerful, and it turned them into this. Some say this transformation was all due to a spell for vengeance that somehow went wrong. But some legends indicate that they are their own species and have just always been here. Some say that when the Seminole people were forced from Florida to Oklahoma, that the Stakini came with them. Others say that they had no knowledge of them before they got to Oklahoma, where they were forced to live beside them. So all that being said, 
there is supposedly an area in or near Sasakwa, Oklahoma, known as Stickland. Legend claims is absolutely infested with Stikini. Where is Stickland exactly? I don't know. The maps won't tell me. Maybe a local will tell us. But what we do know is that Sasakwa itself is a little spooky. The post office was established here in the year 1880. In 1907, the population here was 237. By 1930, it had jumped up to 781. But over time, people started to get out of here. By the year 2000, the population was 150. In 2020, the population was 80. Why? Why does no one want to live here? Well, it is said that there is a lot of unexplainable things that happens here. Some claim the whole town's haunted. And that, quote, every building has something in it. And everyone in town, both young and old, knows to lock their windows and their doors at night. You wouldn't want anything getting in while you're, uh, while you're sleeping. There's also apparently a church right outside Sasakwa called the Bird Creek Church. And it is about right here. It doesn't look too strange on the map. But it's been said that local elders warn people away from this area because of the high number of Stikini around it. And some people, while ignoring sound advice, who come to check it out anyway, have apparently encountered some type of very large humanoid creature that had wings and an owl-like face. And that's terrifying. Like, what do you mean there are vampire witch owls that want to want to eat my living beating heart? That absolutely not Oklahoma absolutely not I don't even live there and I'm scared so I gotta know have any of y'all ever encountered anything that may have been one of these vampire witches and have you all right so that was from user Amber all right so we go over to paramuseum.org and they have a blog post there called Midnight Horror Stories Witch's Son Mehmet Burke Kaltirik I walk over the rocks, hot as iron, under the September sun. I can make out a few lines in the distance, and a few cracked rocks. But apart from those, not a single tree, not one plant. I have walked until I reach this hill. In the trail of the letter that hurled me once again to my hometown, I guess the correct way to put it would be to say my old hometown, which used to be my hometown. After the Balkan Wars, it's not clear which valley belonged to the Ottomans and which to the Bulgarians. The southern parts of the Rodop Mountains were patrolled by the Turkish resistance, and north by the Bulgarians. Some Ottoman officers even formed their own separate government in the south, and the sad fate of the Balkans, states within states. I entered the kingdom of Bulgaria as a French reporter in the aftermath of the last Balkan War. I had taken French citizenship, relinquishing my Ottoman citizenship, after the political investigation before the proclamation of liberty, what brings me to this place of torn down villages and hastily buried mass graves, filled with the smell of death, is a letter. Being a reporter is cover. There's something I'm after. It's not a smart thing to do, and neither are the things written in the letter. The only explanation is ties of friendship and honor. Aga Nadi had helped me escape to France and get me settled there, the unpayable moral debt dragged me here, where death walks hand in hand with the resistance and the bands. Aga Nagi had two preoccupations, and both of them got him into trouble. The first was that he was too involved in political matters. I had contacted him through an acquaintance because he had fled to France years ago. It was thanks to him I was granted asylum and was naturalized. 
He was also interested in French politics, but out of respect for his pen, he was rarely investigated. This preoccupation wasn't all that bad, leading only to reports by informers in France, if indeed there were any. It was the other preoccupation that spelled trouble. Despite being a rational man, Aga Nadi became interested in spiritualism, or spritism, which was slowly turning into a fad in the West. During this first year in France, his interest turned into enthusiasm and then to passion, along with spirit. It keeps spelling it weird, but spiritualism. He got involved in magnetism and finally into sorcery and mediumship, both discredited today as superstitions. When we met, he had already gone beyond those and was deep in Swedenborgianism and Neoplatoism trying to find out the great beyond. He received letters from all around the world and followed newsletters and books published on the subject. He was also in contact with the strange societies filled with members interested in this kind of thing. His passion could not be described merely as an interest or enthusiasm. It was a true fascination, a deadly fascination with communicating with the other. During one of our conversations, I inadvertently said something like, the old wives' tales of Balkan immigrants. He told his family he had married a French woman there. He was going on a short business trip and disappeared. When a month passed with no news of him, I inquired about him and there, here and there, to no avail. He came back shortly before the onset of the Balkan War. He said he had wandered through the Balkan lands, visiting many graves and ruined buildings, following the lead of scary stories. When the signs appeared that the rumors of war would soon become a reality after Montenegro, attacked Novi Pizar, he had come back. I asked him whether he had seen anything concerning the afterworld in those graveyards and ruins, but he refused to say anything other than the results were negative. We thought his obsession would lose its fervor after this trip, but it got worse. The more, There were more letters, and his interviews with strange societies got more frequent. When I pressed him, he told me what he was after. He was looking for a place the foreigners called occult area, where people experienced a supernatural force and made wishes, conducting rites of their desires. He didn't know the exact location of this place, except that it was in Remelia, but he had found out what it looked like, and in his letters he asked often about it. There were rocks with strange figures painted on them, a high hill almost covered with such paintings, and the dense cypress trees at the otherwise bare top as if there, were grave there was a graveyard there. He never told me what was happening at this ordinary wishing place. There were many such places throughout the Ottoman land, shrines where people made wishes or said votive prayers, rocks with candles were placed on them, or trees with rags tied to their branches. He almost gave up at one point when his search yielded no results. And if it weren't for that cursed letter from Greece, telling a great length of the story of the cult area and its whereabouts, he probably would have. The letter talked about a place on Redope Mountains, a cult area de dedicated to Hecate, the goddess of witches and sorcerers in ancient times. There apparently was a hill that infidels as well as Christian Bulgarians, Turks, and passerby claimed since the day of ignorance to draw their wishes under cinder and by engraving. After that letter, a new bout of correspondence began. When the president of the Spiritism 
Society in England wrote Aga a letter saying some cult areas did emanate a kind of spiritual power, which could be the sort of place Aga was looking for. Things changed radically. Aga Nadi was convinced that the place he was looking for could be such a cult center. The tragic events began after the short letter written by a Bulgarian professor describing the location of the hill. The professor who studied folklore, and especially superstitions, wrote that there was such a hill called Witch's Hill, in a certain part of the Redoat Mountains, where people who wanted to cast an ill spell on someone drew their wishes on the rocks, and then they didn't have to climb much. What really piqued Aga's interest were the last lines of the letter. Apparently, the people believed that whoever climbed to the top of the hill would become part of the world beyond, like the world of the jinns in Islam. Aga believed that it was too good an opportunity to miss in his quest for taking a look at the world beyond. Both his wife and I implored Aga not to go to those parts just because of some uncorroborated claims. We knew he would once again head towards the Balkan Mountains, and although he said he couldn't go even if he wanted to on account of the Balkan War, continuing with severe intensity, we had our eyes on him. One day towards the end of the Balkan War, he disappeared. He had taken the important letters and his personal notes with him, so we didn't know where he was headed. We had no choice but to wait once again for his return. Alright, let's take a little break and get right back into the story. Months passed after his disappearance. The Second Balkan War began, and one day we received a letter from Aga Nadi, and it still baffles me how it made its way from the mountain village of Bulgaria to us during the hectic days of the war. He described his location exactly and explained why he couldn't come back and said his search was almost over. These lines I write at a derelict inn in the village of V will give you the impression that I've gone mad. You do know, however, that I never believe something unless I see it with my own eyes, and that is why I've undertaken such an impassioned investigation. The search of a lifetime is finally over. I have succeeded in seeing, albeit only briefly, the doors leading to the world beyond. I've witnessed a witch wedding. I've seen the imaginary gatherings and merrymaking mentioned often by the Balkan people in accounts of superstition, including gin weddings. Here, witches and jinns not only open doors to the world beyond, they also cut through the curtain separating the two worlds and cause the other sun to rise. The dark and the scary sun of the jinn world, even the things I have seen from a distance, transfixed me. I still see the images of that strange event, but I have to gather my courage. I have to see it more closely. I send you this letter so that you will not worry about me for it is uncertain what I will see after I go up that hill. One of the youth of this village told me he will go to my town to mail this letter, or go to town to mail this letter, Aga Nadi. It took the letter more than two months to reach us on account of the war conditions. By then, Aga was either on his way back home or had stayed there. I couldn't be expected to sit and wait. I procured the necessary documents and went to the kingdom of Bulgaria. At first, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to find the hill, even though Aganadi had described its location, or that I would meet the corpse of my friend, or not even that. As I got closer to the Balkans and passed through the ruined places smelling of death, I began to fear totally different things. On the sides of the mountain tracks were dead bodies of immigrants, 
files of migrant wagons on muddy roads, the loud noise of the resistance who lit bonfires in village squares, villagers who stayed where they were but were afraid of a new war breaking out. I was speaking in French and presented myself as a French journalist. I had written a couple of short stories in the publications where Aga Nadi's writings appeared, but I thought I had lost my touch long ago. And yet all the pain I witnessed and the fear of being persecuted during, due to my old identity made me remember many things I thought I'd forgotten. I was in danger, just like my friend I was trying to find. The strangest part of my trip were the people I spoke to while searching for the location of the hill. First I came across those who easily gave me directions because they have seen the hill once from a distance. After I got closer, I met others who weren't at all that comfortable with telling me where the hill was, and in fact tried to scare me, and even threatened me so I wouldn't go there. Every mouth I met told me a different and skin-crawling story, in half Turkish, half Bulgarian. It was on the morning that I found that what I was looking for. The sun was rising, the sky had grown red, and there it was, a white, bare hill, covered with lines and cracks, adorned with these like works of art from a giant. At the top, there were cypress, cypresses swaying ominously in the wind. I first arrived at the village Aga Nadi wrote about in his last letter, which was quite some distance from the top. When I walked into the inn and described Aga Nadi's face, I was told that they had last seen him two months ago. The kid working there, he was the one that took the letter to town, said he hadn't seen him in two months, and the last time he saw him, he was climbing up the hill. That was when I noticed a horrible detail. In places far away from here, people easily said the words Witch's Hill, but as I got closer, I heard them say it less and less. Just like the Turkish folk who use euphemisms for owls, pigs, wolves, and jinns, these people almost never mentioned the name of the hill. When they had to talk about it, they called it that place or that hill. Even the resistance, who kept springing up on me behind, from behind rocks and had suddenly disappeared on the road to the hill. I rested at the inn until sundown. When I woke up, when the sun had almost set, I was warned not to go, but I needed to at least find whatever is left of my friend, if indeed anything is. The way to the villagers acted, and the things they told me really scared me, but my conscience outweighed my fear. Now under the September sky, I walked among rocks that are as hot as iron, having been beaten for hours by the sun and still not cool, though it's getting dark. I realized that the lines and cracks on the rocks I had seen from afar were drawings and paintings handmade by the people, desires and wishes since the days of idolaters. But what strikes me are the bad wishes, the curses. Some drew enemy families, some drew the women they loved. I noticed the dried blood stains on them. The anger and hatred of thousands of people have been imprinted on this hill for centuries. Even in the destroyed villages I passed through on my way, or on the roads filled with corpses, I did not see such violence and blood. There's not a single plant at the top, and this may be why. Their shoots could not live. The death wish on the hill probably gave them no chance. I reached the top of the hill. It was already dark. There's a strange-looking expanse before me, and cypresses that look innumerable. Hundreds of cypresses making up a dense forest that reminds me of cemeteries of my country. 
In the dark, each seems to have a face. They all look alive. They are looking at me with their horrible faces. They seem to be ready to embrace me with their branches that look like open arms. In the dark, I was trying to find a trace, a sign of a Ganadi. I walked under the shadows of the cypresses with trepidation. Then I come to the clearing in the midst of the cypresses. This is almost like a town square. I feel eyes watching me in the darkness of the cypresses. I write that down to my mind playing games with me and try to muster my courage until I hear those sounds, drums, beating in the middle of the night, horns blasting away, playing random notes, a racket that defines or defies explanation. Are they coming? The shadows of the cypresses now appear safe and protective. I hide behind one of the trees and watch the clearing. It is really them. Under the coat of night, there come shapeless, distorted faces, arms skewed by curses and maledictions, crooked legs that have carried them here from beyond, drums and horns, laughter that sounds like clappers, a mindless festivity. They are gathering in the clearing, surrounded by darkness. A crazy pandemonium ensues. All the jinns have come here. The witches of the eponymous hill have arrived. They gather and mingle with such ecstasy that I can't even close my eyes in the face of this terrifying scene. Fear has conquered my body. As I watch them, a ray of light appears in their midst. No stars in the pitch black sky. The moon has disappeared. The door to the world beyond is cracked open. The light at the center of the festivity becomes brighter. This is the brightness that does not soothe. It creates fear and anxiety, pushing the limits of the mind. Then it rises, the witch's sun. The door to the beyond are open. The scarlet sun that sucks out the light and spews out darkness. Its color seems to come from all the bloodshed by the maleficent wishes and curses here. It rises from the ruckus of the gym. On their crooked hands, it seems to get larger. Wait, what is that? I see a face in the sun, a silhouette that seems to have suffered the pain of a thousand tortures, a face that started to lose its contours as it passed from our world to theirs, a man in pain, a countenance that evokes pity and then immediately frightens and terrifies. Face to face, I can't take my eyes off of it. An uncanny similarity. I think I have found what I was looking for. I'm looking at the face that was once a god's. Or perhaps it is myself and I watch it in the light of the witch's son, my own soul, my unfortunate soul, who had shared a god's fate by coming to this god's forsaken place. I'd never imagined I would see the doors to the world beyond. Now I am here. In this indescribable place where the crooked and sinful bodies are forever scorched by the sun of witches and jinns. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was written by Mehmet Burke Yaltirik. So that was a really cool story. Alright, we go over to Ranker, where they have an article, Horrifying True Stories That Are Just Like the Blair Witch Mythology, by Christopher Myers. Is the Blair Witch legend true? Is there a real Blair Witch? By now everyone knows, spoiler, the Blair Witch Project is a work of fiction. However, the mythology behind the film does resemble real-life events, several of them. 
That isn't to say the Blair Witch was inspired by these events, but rather they are many Blair Witch-esque events in history. This list of Blair Witch-adjacent true creepy legends will leave you with chills. The subject matter ranges from witches to child serial killers. Some are real haunting accounts, and others are true historical tales of torture and disappearance. All elements of the Blair Witch mythology are covered and compared to these events. Unlike the favorite found footage film, these stories are real. Alright, Maul Dyer, the real witch of Maryland. Though Ellie Kidward, the historical witch of the Blair Witch Project, is fictional, there is a real legend of a famous witch who lived in Maryland. Maul Dyer is said to have lived in Leonardtown during the late 17th and early 18th century. During one harsh winter, when an epidemic illness killed or hit Leonardtown, Leonardtown, townspeople suspected Dyer of cursing them. A group of vigilantes chased her into the forest. There, she knelt beside a stone and placing one hand upon it, prayed for justice. According to the legend, the mob of townspeople killed her. A few days later, they found Mole's hand still imprinted on the rock. The rock was moved to the town courthouse, where it sits to this day. Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Alright, Ellie Kidward, aka the Blair Witch, is said to have lured children to their doom so that she could draw blood from them. In the earliest 17th century, Countess Elizabeth Bathory did just that in Hungary. Probably the most prolific serial killer of all time, Bathory is said to have murdered 650 people, though this happened so long ago it's hard to know for sure. She was believed to have tortured and murdered servant girls as well as peasant girls she abducted. Legend has it she would bathe in their blood to maintain her youth appearance. This appeared, or this earned her the nickname the Bloody Countess. In Blair Witch mythology, the township of Blair is said to have disappeared, cursed by the witch. The colony of Roanoke, North Carolina, disappeared in 1590. Roanoke was England's first attempt at permanent settlement in the New World. A group of settlers arrived in 1587, but when ships returned three years later with supplies, it was learned that the colony had vanished. All that remained were mysterious words, Croatoan carved into the gatepost, and the crow carved into the tree. Though there are many theories on what happened, the true fate of the colonists remains a mystery. The Munich Handbook of Necromancy According to Blair Witch Legend, a book was published in 1806 called The Blair Witch Cult. There have been many written accounts of witchcraft throughout the ages, such as the Munich Handbook of Necromancy, this famous manuscript, currently held in the Bavarian State Library in Munich, is a grimoire full of spells and incantations from the 15th century. The textbook of magic includes three major types, illusionist, psychological, and divinatory. The manual is a source book for summoning demonic spirits. According to Blair Witch Legend, in 1825, a pale hand was seen reaching up from the waters of Tappy East Creek and pulling a 10-year-old Eileen Treacle under. Her body was never found. In 2014, an Australian woman, Kim Davidson, was swimming in Murphy's Hole in Queensland's Lockyer River with a friend and three children. A photo taken at that day has four children in it. No one knows who the fourth kid is, but she looks like a ghost. 
What's more, it was revealed that a 13-year-old girl drowned in that very spot 100 years before that photo was taken. Serial Killers of Children A serial killer appears in Blair Witch Mythology, which tells the tale of a hermit who, in 1941, under the instruction from the witch, lured seven children to the woods and murdered them. When the town found out, they hung him. There have been several serial killers of children throughout history, and the Blair Witch Child serial killer was probably based on as much as on fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel as it was any real person. But still, the story is rooted in reality. Luis Garavido, for instance, killed 189 boys in Colombia between the ages of 8 and 16, often posing as a priest or a monk to lure them in. He also sexually molested and mutilated his victims. The central premise of the Blair Witch Project is the disappearance of few young people. The film is framed and found footage discovered as part of a police investigation into the disappearances. Mysterious disappearances are real tragedies and all too common. Take the unsolved disappearance of college student Mara Mori. On February 9, 2004, Murray alerted her employer and professors she was taking time off for a family emergency, although no emergency existed. She left the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, drove north, and crashed her car in Haverville, New Hampshire. A bus driver saw the crash and stopped to ask Mara if she needed help, but she told him no. He called the police anyway. But by the time they arrived, the car was abandoned and Mara was nowhere to be found. Despite an extensive search, neither her nor her body were ever discovered. Right? Of course, they mentioned the, you know, Bell Witch haunting in which they terror, you know, the Bell Witch is said to have a land dispute, like a neighbor with John Bell. And then they had all this supernatural and poltergeist stuff happen, especially to the daughter Betsy. Uh, people remember seeing like a, a black dog that was huge um, on the farm. General Andrew Jackson even had an, a run-in with the entity when he had his whole troop stop there to take care of it. And they were threatened by the Bell Witch audibly in the house. There's one Holda the Witch. Along with the winding trails of the Rockefeller State Park Preserve, a legend can be found. Sometime around the 1770, a German healer named Hulda is said to have been found living in Sleepy Hollow, New York. The outsider was shunned as a witch by D Dutch settlers, so she lived alone in the woods near Spook Rock. During the Revolutionary War, Hulda joined a local militia to protect the town from the British. During a skirmish, Hulda was killed by the Redcoats and her body was discovered in the forest. Appreciating her sacrifice and finding a Bible in her hut, the townsfolk agreed to bury her in the church cemetery as a hero. Right? That was some cool stories from Rinker. Alright, I go over to ABC News, where they have an article, Student Expelled for Casting a Spell. Let's get into it. This is from 2000, so quite a while ago. Oklahoma City, October 28th. Oklahoma High School suspended a 15-year-old student after accusing her of casting a magic spell that caused the teacher to become sick, lawyers for the student said on Friday. The American Civil Liberties Union 
said it had filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Courts in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on behalf of student Brandy Blackbear, charging that the assistant principal of the Union Intermediate High School in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, suspended her for 15 days last December for supposedly casting a spell. The suit also charged the Tulsa area Union Public Schools with repeatedly violating Black Bear's civil rights by seizing notebooks she used to write horror stories and barring her from drawing or wearing signs of the pagan religion Wicca. It's hard for me to believe that in the year 2000, I'm walking into court to defend my daughter against charges of witchcraft brought by her own school, said Timothy Blackbear, Brandy's father. Outlandish accusations. Joanne Bell, executive director of the ACLU's Oklahoma chapter, said that outlandish accusations have made Blackbear's life at school unbearable. I, for one, would like to see the so-called evidence this school has that a 15-year-old girl made a grown man sick by casting a magic spell, Bell said. A lawyer for the school district declined to comment. The lawsuit filed on Thursday alleges that Black Bear was summoned to the office of assistant principal Charlie Bushyhead, Charlie Bushyhead last December after a teacher fell ill and was questioned another about her interest in Wicca. According to the lawsuit, Brandy Blackbear had read a library book out of about Wicca beliefs and under aggressive interrogation by Bushhead said she might be a Wiccan. In fact, Blackbear is a Roman Catholic, according to the newspaper Tulsa World. The interview culminated with defendant Bushhead accusing plaintiff Brandy Blackbear of casting spells at a teacher at the school to be sick and to be hospitalized, the lawsuit said. But it is pretty crazy that we still have, like, accusations and court things. Anything to do with witchcraft is just so preposterous. (laughs) I know during my voodoo episode, um, I read about one of the voodoo priestesses. A guy was, like, hurling, like, hate speech at her or something, just, like, antagonizing her. And she warned him, and then he got hit by a car right in front of her. Which I think is crazy. And so I also think from the voodoo episode about the lady that was like an outcast for her beliefs by the town. And she said that whenever she dies, she's going to take the town with her. And then as soon as she died, there was a huge hurricane that wiped out the entire town. Things like that make me pause. <laughs> Things like that, I'm like, I, I kind of believe in this stuff. So... I'm not going to mess with it. (laughs) I don't know. It's pretty cool. Let's see. I'm probably going to have to do another episode because there were so many stories. Um, I do think Christianity had a huge influence on the, you know, evilification, I guess, of witches in general. I feel like back in the old, old, old times, they were more seen as the wise people. You know, I know on Sabrina, they call them the cunning women, you know, but I feel like that's true. Like, there used to be people that were like, you know, witches were consulted for all kinds of things, uh, from healing to divination. So I do believe in those gifts, and I do believe that this kind of stuff happens and comes true. 
I think I'm going to end it there for today, but I'll do a part two for Halloween, and we'll talk about Samhain and different things about that, and we'll read some more articles about some witchy, scary stories. All right. Thanks for joining us tonight. Again, my name is Chappie. I've been your host today. Also, check us out on the Facebook page at P.S. Spooky Shiz. And then feel free to connect with me and send me any stories. Um, It's a great way to get your story posted on the podcast. And if you want to tell it yourself, let me know and we'll set something up. With that being said, make sure to have a spooky Halloween this week. And then I know Halloween's next week, but you know everybody's partying on Saturday. (laughs) All right. Everybody have a safe week, and I will have a part two before Halloween for our Halloween episode. All right. Stay spooky, my friends.